fresh wind in our sails. What do you suppose it feels like to experience resurrection? What is that feeling? Is there any way that we can even comprehend it just a little bit standing from this vantage point? I'll tell you, a few years ago, I was rummaging through old documents for our family. And as most of you, I think, know I'm, I'm adopted. All right? So I'm looking through my adoption papers. You know, a little bit about what I looked like when I was first born. That was kind of cool to read, you know, from the nun's point of view as a Catholic adoption agency. And then I came across this document that said I was born on January 1st, 1957. See, I know that I'm born on January 30th, 1956. And so suddenly I had a year back. It was the coolest feeling in the world. I had a whole year to live over again. Of course, that was the one that was wrong and the other ones were right. But for that moment, I experienced new life, a whole new year. Have you ever had that, that uh, experience where something has gone wrong between you and another person? Maybe you said something stupid. Maybe you texted something stupid. And you're just sitting there sweating bullets, wondering how it's going to go. And you know this relationship is, is now broken in some way. And you're feeling all that weight and all that angst. And then you get the text back that says, oh, what? No, nothing. Or you see the person and the arms come around you and you just feel that release and everything just drops and goes away. New life, right? Some of you have told me about anxiously waiting for a biopsy to come back. What is it going to say? You know, And then it comes back benign and the weight comes off. Others of you have told me about actually getting cancer and having to go through it and then it goes into remission and the weight comes off again. Now you may see that this isn't exactly the same thing as experiencing the resurrection of Jesus, but we're not going after the actual concept of it. We're going after the feelings. What did it feel like to think that this loss was real and then to find out that it only changed forms? That life was still there. How did that feel? What was that release like? This is what we're trying to get at. To take Jesus' resurrection out of the realm of history and bring it back where it belongs, right into our own hearts. What's the most important thing that we can take away from this Easter, this year? See, we tend to focus on the spectacular. We tend to focus on the supernatural. We focus on the, on the actual miracle. I don't know how many articles I've read about how it could have been possible that Jesus would have resurrected and all these different scenarios and things. We're focused obsessively, compulsively on the miracle, on the event, on the supernatural. And as awesome as it was, if we continue to focus there, we are continuing to relegate Jesus' resurrection to history. 2,000 years hence, more than arm's length. And we can keep it separate from us. We can keep it apart from us. It's way over there. But notice, the Gospels can always steer us back if we will let them, if we will really pay attention. Because the Gospels focus on the effect of the resurrection on the followers, not the event itself, not the resurrection itself. And of course, this makes us crazy because we are craving all those details. We want to know what happened in that tomb. How did this actually take place? But the Gospels don't take us there. The story picks up after the resurrection. The resurrection happens off stage. We know nothing about it. But then, 
Jesus' followers and friends. What's going on with them? That's what we are treated to. That's what we get the details over. The tiny, unspectacular reactions of just regular people living in extraordinary times. Yes, the gospel story tells us where to look. Not at the miracle, not at the spectacular, but how the miracle affects our lives. That's where it's taking us. In other words, the question is not whether you believe some theological doctrine or in some miracle, but what difference does it make that you believe? How does it change your life? How does it change your decisions? How does it change your attitudes for life? Now, I think it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I read this over and over again. How none of Jesus' friends or followers recognize him the first time that they saw him. Have you ever thought about that? They don't recognize him, story after story. Now, is this an important detail? Well, the Gospels are short. You know, it's not like writing by the inch, right? You've got a writing project and you've got to fill two pages. They're not doing this here. The Gospels are short. Every single word is important. Every single word is there for a purpose. Nothing is just frivolous. And it's showing us something, always pointing in a direction, every single detail. So what is it? How do they not recognize? Did Jesus look different to them? Was there another, some sort of miracle that, that was cloaking his you know, vision or their vision? See, here we go again, off into the spectacular. No, this is not really about Jesus. This is about us. The story shifts point of view. It's not about Jesus and the miracle. It's about what was happening in the hearts of his followers as they were experiencing this time in their lives. You see, seeing the risen Jesus turns out to be a process. A process of becoming ready to be able to see something that is so far out of our expectation, out of the realm of possibility, that we can't accept it at first. And we're watching these followers go through this process. Remember, in Luke's vision, in Luke's version, the, woman come, the women come at dawn. Now, why were they coming at dawn? Well, because Pesach had started at sundown on Friday. That was the deal. Jesus died around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, and they were scrambling to get him into a tomb before sundown, before about 6, because it was abomination to leave the body unburied after sundown. Not only that, this was Pesach Shabbat. This was the Sabbath of Passover, that was starting at sundown on Friday. And so there was a hard stop. They get him into the tomb just in time, but they don't have time to embalm him. They don't have time to put the spices on or any of that sort of activity. And so the women go and they buy all the spices at night after sundown on Saturday when the Shabbat had ended. And they wait until dawn the next morning to be able to take the spices to the tomb and finish what they couldn't do before. And when they get there, of course, they're confused. The, the tomb, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. What in the heck is going on? In Luke's version, there are two men sitting there, and they have no idea who they are. And they tell the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? Simple question. Good question. Why did they? I suppose a better question is, why wouldn't they? Right? They watched him die. 
They watched him being buried, put into the tomb. They watched him being shrouded before that. They expected him to stay put. Wouldn't you? You know, there's a story that I think a lot of you have heard, but for some of you, my jokes can still be new. Marion and I were married about four months and uh, she was working, I was working, and uh, I had to go get something at Target, you know, uh, at my lunch break. And so I went to Target, and I'm trying to find it. I'm looking down aisle after aisle, and I see this aisle, and here's this beautiful woman walking toward me, and she just kind of caught my eye. And I'm watching her, and it was literally three beats before I realized it was Marion. <laughs> and I get to go home with her. And of course, it's, it's okay if you're checking out your own wife, right, honey? The point is, why did it take me so long to recognize her? Because it was so out of context. I wasn't expecting to see her. I wasn't looking for her. It was the last thing in my mind as I was looking. And here comes this woman, and it took me that long to just recognize my own wife. Now, what if she had died? What if we had had the service, and I had watched the casket go into the ground, and then I saw her at Target? How long would it take me to accept that then? See, we have to put this into terms that we can really grapple with. We sometimes wonder, what's wrong with these people? Why would they recognize them? Well, would you, under those kind of circumstances? How long did it take for Jesus' followers to accept what was going on around them? What broke them through? That resistance and allowed them to be able to see. Mary in John 20. We just heard Marion read the, uh, the kind of just a way of looking at it from her point of view. But she goes to the tomb, and she sees that it's empty. She goes in. There's nothing there. There are two men sitting on either side of the shelf where the body was laid. And her, she's crying hysterically, uncontrollably, trying to see through her tears. And she goes back out, and there's another man there, and she thinks he's the gardener. And so she lays into him. If you have taken this body, if you've taken my master, tell me. Tell me where he is. Sometimes I think about it. You remember those cartoons, you know, where someone's running, 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 and they run off the edge of a cliff, and they just keep on going in thin air, running, 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 until they look down and realize there's no ground under them, and then they fall? I think Mary was kind of like that, you know? She's all business right now. She's on a mission. She's going to finish what she started. And think about that. For any of you who have lost someone, when you're still planning the service, when everybody is flying in and you got to have the food and you got to have this and you got to have that, that buoys you up and keeps you going and keeps you running off the edge of that cliff until everybody flies home again and things return to what's going to have to pass for normal now with this big hole in your life, then you fall. And I see Mary like that. She's just running, running, speed talking with Jesus. If you've got the body, you've got to tell me because I need to get it. And, and, almost, and you can almost imagine Jesus saying, okay, hold on. Uh, um, uh, and then finally, Mary, Mary, shut up. Stop. Take a breath. And all of a sudden, everything kicks in for her. Just the tone of his voice. The way he said her name that he must have said thousands of times, tens of thousands of times in their years together. And she hears it again, and she knows who it is. And, of course, she goes, as would be typical for uh, a woman with her master to go to grab his feet, and he says, touch me not. You know, don't cling to me. Go tell in them. But it was that intimate 
familiar gesture, that tone of voice that breaks her through, allows her to finally see the impossible. On the road to Emmaus, you know, the disciples that are walking there, it's a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Usually walking speed is about three to four miles an hour, so they could have made it in a couple hours. But they're walking along, and then Jesus approaches them and starts to walk with them. He hears what they're talking about and asks them questions. Are you really the only guy in the whole world that doesn't know what just happened here in the last couple of days? No, tell me. All right, so they tell him everything that's going on, and then he starts telling them about the scriptures and how this all pertains. And when they get to Emmaus, he's making like he needs to keep going on. But they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's almost, it's almost nightfall. Come in and have dinner. And they talk him into it. He comes in and he has dinner. They have no idea who they're talking to this whole time, a couple hours, until he breaks the bread, reclined at the couch, and passes it out and blesses it. And then, all of a sudden, it kicks in. They know who it is, and he vanishes from their sight. That simple gesture, again, that they had seen hundreds of times, each meal... Jesus, as the leader of the group, would break the bread, bless it, and pass it out to them. And that breaks the spell, breaks them through so they can see what's going on. Peter, I'm going fishing. Now, I want you to think about just beyond I'm going fishing. Jesus, uh, Peter was a fisherman, right? He was going back to his old life. He was going back to his career. He was going back to his profession. What else was he going to do? The object of everything that he had been about for the last few years was taken from him. He was going back to the old routine. He was going back to the old life. And he and his friends push out into the boat. They're fishing all night long. There's nothing. And then here's this Yahoo calling from the beach. <laughs> Put the nets on the other side of the boat. And it's that irrational command. They know it's the same water. <laughs> The width of their little boat isn't going to make any difference. But breaking through the rational, breaking through the logical, breaking through the expectations allows them to realize who it is that is speaking to them from the shore. It's a master. And when they get to him, what is he doing? Something spectacular? He's sitting on his heels in the sand and cooking fish over a little makeshift fire. He's cooking them breakfast. That's it. The normal things that we do every single day, that's what Jesus is doing. It opens their eyes. It lets them see. Something beyond what they can understand or know is happening here. It's kind of like, you know those silly identification questions that you got to answer when you're filling out a form or something? You know, they don't ask you the things that anyone can know. They ask you the most obscure and intimate details. What was the name of your first pet? What was the name of your third grade teacher? You know? What was, I mean, you fill in the blank. But it's like those movies where, you know, mistaken identity, and it's like, how do you prove someone's identity? You ask them the most obscure detail. Where did we go to eat on the second day of our honeymoon? You know, if they know those intimate details, then you can say, ah, somehow I don't understand. But you're the deal. I don't know how this works. We prove our identity to ourselves and to each other in intimacy, not in the spectacular. This is where the scriptures are pointing us always and continually. 
Jesus and after Jesus' death and resurrection, still pointing us toward intimacy, pointing us within. Because we really only know someone after experiencing those most intimate details. Jesus' friends are going through a process right now, a process of re-experiencing intimacy with him in a completely different way, with changed form, so that they can prove his identity to themselves. And it's going to be the same way with us. We don't somehow get to skip over the process. It doesn't happen from the outside in, always from the inside out. It's not about believing theological doctrines or theological data points. It's not about believing something about the resurrection. It's about letting intimate experience convince us beyond our own intellect, beyond what we can conceive, and taking us all the way to trust, even without knowing how. Can we still trust? Yes. If we have the experience underneath. It's about looking for truth in the smallest, most intimate details, because if it's not there, we're going to remain unchanged. If this truth is not in every detail of our lives, it will not change us. Why do you seek the living among the dead? That is a great line. Wonderful line. And it's also the central clue to seeing the risen Jesus. You know, I used to think that if I walked with Jesus, I would have recognized him. You ever have those kind of thoughts? Yeah, of course I would have done that. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I would have been able to do that. Really? No, I spent a decade looking for Jesus. And I looked in theology. I looked in books. I looked in the Bible. I looked in church. I looked in religion. I looked everywhere that I expected Jesus to be. And he wasn't there. He just wasn't there. I looked for him in my beliefs, in my ideas, and in my thoughts, and he wasn't there. Why not? Because the moment that we settle on a belief or an idea about God, he's not there anymore. Life and spirit is defined by motion. We've talked about this before. Ruach means wind, breath, spirit, all at the same time because all are defined by motion. If there is no motion to the air, it's not wind. If there's no breath in your body moving, you're not alive. And if there's no motion to spirit, it's not spirit anymore. It's something else. Living things move. (laughs) If there's no motion, there's no life. Set belief is static. It doesn't move. It's set. That means it's motionless. That means it's dead. It's no longer among the living. And Jesus is not there. Our set beliefs limit our ability to be able to see reality, ultimate reality, as it actually is. Because then we can only see what we expect to see. And we can't be broken free of the spell as long as we hang on to that rock, that belief The Gospels are showing us how to look for a risen Jesus in the heart of everyday life. Because if we can't find him there, if we can't find the miracle of new life there in the details of our life, then no matter what we know or think we know, how lofty our ideas may go, we will miss Jesus. 
we cannot see him. He doesn't exist for us. What did it feel like for Jesus' friends to experience the resurrection? It felt intimate, right? It felt familiar. It felt like home. And most importantly, until it felt like that, until it became intimate, until it became feeling like home, it had no power to help them. Jesus didn't exist for them. Think about it. When a loved one calls your name, everything in you responds, doesn't it? It changes you. Even the neurochemistry in your head changes when you hear that voice. Everything responds. Everything feels like home. It grounds us. And there's nothing more spectacular than that in our experience, if we're really honest. And when all the tension and all the anguish flows out of us in the arms of a forgiving person who loves us and we know, then we can see the miracle of renewed life. Jesus is always among the living. He's always among each detail of our lives. And as soon as we decide where he's supposed to be, we'll miss him again. If we just let ourselves flow with our lives, with each detail, and quit damming up the flow with our thoughts of how things are supposed to be, then we can move with spirit. Then everything can change. Jesus is among the living. If we're looking for Jesus in the clouds, he's cooking breakfast. We've got to realize he's here, he's now. Now, resurrection is a central tenet of the Christian faith. It's huge, it's transcendent, and it should be. And nothing I'm saying is meant to diminish that transcendence, the hugeness of the resurrection, the immensity of it. But as long as it remains a huge theological concept for us, then it can't affect us intimately. It won't affect our lives. Jesus saw his Father in every intimate detail of life. He called that kingdom, that state of being able to see God in everything and everyone. His friends couldn't see that he had risen until they could see him in every detail of their lives. And neither will we. Let's take that away this Easter. It's not what you believe. It's what difference it makes that you believe. We find the risen Lord in each face and each embrace of our lives, or not at all. That's just the way it's going to work. Jesus is always in motion, always among the living, and that's us. We're the living. This is where we'll find Jesus. Look for him there. Stop thinking historically. Stop thinking religiously. Stop thinking theologically. The miracles are right in front of our faces. Will we see them? Will we see the face of our risen Lord as we're just walking along the street? When we as a people can do that, we as a people are living with the risen Christ. That's what the Gospels are showing us. We've got to move. We've got to move.